I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics of the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijen. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Over the course of this podcast, we've done many music episodes where we each break down some of our favorite songs. Some might revolve around a year or music videos or a genre or something really weird. But today, we're talking about those musicians in the late 90s and early 2000s that had crazy success for a few months. Maybe their song was in a commercial. Maybe they showed up, you know, on some video game. Their hit song had now since found a way on, like, best of Spotify playlists, internet memes, just kind of once in a while remember that song. But many of these cases, uh, these acts have faded into obscurity and or have found success using other avenues like songwriting or producing or sometimes just other random things. This week, we're diving into that world of one-hit wonders. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. I feel like we, you and I have talked about doing an episode like this for, I don't know, at least season two, right? I think it's been on the list for quite a while. I also want to add a profession to the ones that you rattled off that they do post one hit wonderdom, which we'll get into it. But interior design, extremely random. I mean, really, the the possibilities are endless after you've had one hit song. <laughs> are, I, yes, it depends. I feel like it's really <laughs> That's true. A, a mixed bag of results, like things that I thought were going to go one way went left. And anyway, but you are right. All of these songs have been included on some sort of best or worst because I have two songs that are on like worst of most annoying oh, yeah. lists. Yep. But yeah, best essentially the Razzies of the music industry. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll get, I think it will become clear in the fullness of time um, why we've been looking forward to doing this kind of episode for a while, because it just, it's sort of, it kind of goes a little bit with our now that's what you call music finale episode, where we just wanted to talk about random singles that were very popular for 
inexplicable reasons to us up until we looked for ourselves. I also revisited a lot of these music videos, which was also very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, we talked a little bit about this during the Now episode, but I feel like the concept of a novelty song, you know, apart from like, I'm thinking like the selfie song in the last two, 10 years and maybe a couple of others, that novelty Wait, what's song. what's the selfie song? What's the selfie song? Do you remember? Song? It was like, what? let me, let me tape it first. Let me take a selfie. Do you not remember this song? No. Like this is like five, five years ago or something like that. There was a song on the radio and it was this really obnoxious girl. And then she just, it's, she's rattling off all these things. And then she just ends it with like, before the, the beat drops. But first, let me take a selfie. And then it just goes into this weird techno beat. It's truly the strangest song that capitalized on a new term that we were using uh, because of Instagram. That is, I do not, I have complete amnesia of that song. I have no recollection of his existence. I was today years old when I heard of this song. The last like novelty song for me that I remember is Friday by Rebecca Black, who is now an ambassador for Bay Street Shopping Mall in Emeryville. And it's so weird to go to that fucking AMC. Well, used to go to the AMC and like see her face. And I'm like, gotta pull up on a Friday, Friday. Like that's all I can think about. She's not only an ambassador for that mall. She's also a an ambassador for the California Census Bureau. She showed up on what? several Facebook ads. Yes. Excuse yes, me? Yes, friend. Yes. She is a California Census ambassador trying to make us all count while we're kicking in the front seat. I mean, it honestly makes about as much sense as when Alicia Keys was like artistic director of BlackBerry phones. So, you know, whatever. Fine. Or um, what's her face? Danielle Jonas being the ambassador for pork? Just- <laughs> You know, whatever. Uh, okay, cool, great. A great. Where are they now? Mini recap for us there. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, this was a really fascinating. I think we both kept texting each other throughout our research that this. Oh, was we probably... both spiraled. We were oh, spiraling. Dark, <laughs> dark, dark, dark downward spirals. <laughs> Another fun thing is that a lot of these songs have been full-blown like three-page sketches that have been that have made it into kml shows too like who let the dogs out there was a long sketch about that mambo number five i um yeah it it was also very hard to take some of these songs seriously i suppose too (laughs) truly truly and that's i think that's kind of what's amazing to me um i just some of these it's like i can now listen to again because i'm like generally that actually was a very well written song uh, or it's a bop still and then there are others where i'm like yeah i don't think i would ever truly choose to listen to this song ever again and that's all right <laughs> i have in my notes multiple times for these th- two songs that are also shared the most annoying uh list placement i have walked off of wedding dance floors, bar and bat mitzvahs, my own prom. I was like, no, I'm not dancing with this. I just left. I just like walked away. (laughs) These songs have repelled me. And if you know me, someone who spent their whole Labor Day weekend learning the WAP dance, I love to dance. So for a song to physically expel me from a place that brings me joy, you really have to be super fucking annoying. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Oh, my God. So which song is your first song? (laughs) Well, I decided to just rip off the old Band-Aid and start with Lou Bega's Mambo Number no. 5 from 1999. What's your first song? 
Well, it's funny you should say that because I actually flipped mine specifically so I could follow with Mambo number five with Who Let the Dogs Out. So, yes. Okay, good. We're going to go from dark to light, just like an ombre, and it's going to be great. Okay. Amazing. So, Lou Bega, Mambo number five. It's obviously not original to hate this song, but I've never claimed that I am, and I do fucking hate this song. I have so many memories, as I've just mentioned, of leaving the dance floor of a bot or bar mitzvah or a wedding. The second the song came on between the years of 1999 and 2003, much like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, there's nothing like being stuck in traffic for five to ten years of your life with this song constantly playing on the radio. And as I had also mentioned a few years ago, the sketch group that I write for, Killing My Lobster, did a 90s theme show. And somebody wrote a parody of Mambo Number no. 5 where Lou Bega tries to shoehorn in other list type songs as a formula for him. And it just sort of devolves into him naming different cheeses and essentially rattling off a grocery list. And I honestly cannot... I cannot now separate the two. So I was sort of like seeing that actor who played Lou Bega like in my mind as I was re-watching the Mambo Number no. 5 video and just hating everything about that music video for sure. Um, but little did I know there's a lot more darkness behind the production of the song. And as Emily's text from me at 9 PM on Friday night with a music video entitled Scatman versus Hatman, that is only a glimpse of the darkness to come about Mr. Oh Vega, God. but I digress. Lou Vega was born David Lubega, son of a Ugandan father and Sicilian mother, what a combo, and was raised mostly in Munich, Germany. As a teenager, Bega hoped to break into the music industry as a rapper, which, like, show show me that, please, um, which is a common theme that I noticed with another song on this list. As some may already know, as a lot goes with these one-hit wonder stories, there's always a darker, little-known backstory behind the track. For Lubega, his summer bop in 1999 led to years of litigation, backbiting over credit and the eventual ending of a musical friendship. And we aren't even getting into the semi-problematicness of a dude rattling off a bunch of women's names as belt or bedpost notches, etc. The PR story goes that on a trip to Miami, Bega discovered and fell in love with Latin music, which led him to make Mambo number no. 5. But Goer Bizenkamp, his then manager, said they exaggerated Bega's field trip to Florida to make it seem more authentic that I think the official quote, I don't have it in front of me. Cause I was like, I'm trying to, I was trying to trim this down. So I got rid of some of the more official sounding quotes, but essentially he fell in love with the Latin jazz funk or something, something like that. It sounded very like a white person wrote this PR statement about why he <laughs> made Mambo number five. And like, of course he fell in love with it in Miami. It's the, it's the soul of Latin jazz. And you're like, okay, anyway, Bega famously finished off his 1950s-inspired persona with a thin mustache, cherry-poppin' daddy's zoot suits, and a signature fucking fedora, which he apparently still wears on stage today. The creation of the track started with a sample of the, the punchy jazz riff from a Damasco Perez Prado's Mambo Number no. 5, though how it was discovered is actually a matter of a legal dispute. According to Michael Bodicher and Goez von Enem, I hope I, I hope I said the last one correctly, because I think I said the first one correctly, who both work for a Mambo number no. five, the original version, rights holder, Pure Music, said that the 1949 track was featured on a CD full of samples from their back catalog. And it's a common way for music publishing companies to reintroduce their songs to producers and songwriters. But Bizenkamp, his then manager, argues that they found the song in a, quote, carton of CDs from German record execs who were looking for Latin tracks for the 1998 German romantic comedy Love Scenes from Planet Earth. I removed the original German title that was in there because there was absolutely no way I was going to get that right. 
Yeah. Isn't that weird? Something as minor as like they just didn't credit where they got the sample from led to years and years of litigation, which like, you know, just give people the credit that they deserve, which is in, you know, an argument that carries on to this day. Yes. Yeah. We'll learn a little bit of how that gets complicated. But yes, yes. Agreed. But a Vegas spokesperson said that he first heard the original Mama Number Five during this alleged prior visit to Miami. All of this is to say that this song hic- hiccup later landed Vega in a seven-year legal battle with Prado's estate. A German co- court eventually ended it in 2008 with a ruling that declared Prado the co-writer of Vega's Mambo Number no. Five. After they recorded Mambo Number no. Five, Vega and Bizenkamp took it to Peter Mazel, a late, a late great, well-known German record exec who recognized the potential in the song to crack the top 40. The song was then finally taken to Andy Schnell in it, then a managing director of BMG Berlin. And he went on to describe the track as saying, I can tell you my emotions after 10 seconds. I thought, oh, it's swing. I don't like swing. And after 20 seconds, I thought it's a hit. After one minute, it was a surefire hit. After two minutes, I pressed the stop button and said, that's a huge hit. In August of 1999, Mambo had sold 1.3 million singles in Germany, with the European total at 2.2 million, according to Billboard. Bizenkamp and Vega were unsure whether to just coast on their European success or should they just try their luck in the American market. We know how that went. Obviously, he did, and it debuted at number three on the Hot 100 chart in November of 1999 and reached number one on the Top 40 chart. It is his only single in the U.S. to ever go number one. He was also nominated for Best Male Pop Performance at the 2000 Grammys alongside alongside Mark Anthony and Ricky Martin. So it was during that, like, quote unquote, Latin explosion that happened yeah. between 99 and 2001. And by his own admission, and a few other musicians on this list also copped to this, uh, Mariah Carey and Glitter, obviously, were not the only ones whose albums were adversely affected by 9-11. Vega goes on to say, I admit in 2001, when I was supposed to bring out the second album, 9-11 happened and nobody wanted fun songs for a long time. But by the late 2000s, Bizenkamp and Vega had another falling out, and Vega's new management team effectively forced him out of the picture, prompting another round of legal disputes. It spilled over into the fight about the Mama Number 5 origin story, with Bizenkamp then coming out against him, and then Vega's team sought to erase his credit completely after that. Um, Vega side claims that Bizenkamp has pretended to be more involved in the song than he actually was. Vega never reached a Mambo number no. five high ever again, and he was released a handful of albums and singles in Europe throughout the 2000s and 2010s. As recently as 2018, he was promoting Scatman and Hatman, which was at the time his first single. So in 2018, it was his first single in six years. The song is a remix of Scatman John's 90s dance, and I use the word hit very loosely Scatman, Ski Bapu, Bada Bap. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> It's wild. It is. It is. I know I use the word wild a lot to describe things, but honestly, to see and hear this music and this music video is to be believed. I'm going to end it on a mildly spooky note. Beta said that he was first drawn to make the Scatman versus Hatman track because the original artist, Scatman John, died in 1999 and his own father died the same year shortly before the release of Mambo Number no. 5. Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> And that is the tale uh, of Mambo number five. <laughs> you know, what's kind of funny about this is that I feel like Who Let the Dogs Out has a very similar trajectory in some ways as Mambo number five. 
Truly, when I started doing the research for this episode, I did not think we would go, I would go down a rabbit hole where I spent 99 cents to rent a documentary on Amazon about who let the dogs out and the subsequent lawsuits the song's success has caused. So, as soon as you picked Namambo number five, I knew I needed to have a novelty song on this list. This song, for a few months, was everywhere, and it ended up reaching number two in the UK, number one in Australia and New Zealand, the top 10 for several countries in Europe, and number 40 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. But it made it to number six on the dance chart. By the way, what I remember throughout this entire research period for this episode is that Billboard had so many genre sub charts, what have you, at this time of the world. Like, I, we've talked about this on this show, but like, it's amazing how it's like, this song only made it to number whatever on the Hot 100, but it made it onto like the contemporary R&B adult contemporary chart or whatever. Um, (laughs) The song would go on to win a Grammy in 2001 for Best Dance Recording. And the Baja Men would win Billboard Music Award for World Music Artist of the Year, World Music Album of the Year, and then two Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards. <laughs> so the Baja Men, what they were and what they were originally called, by the way, was High Voltage, are a Bahamian band that has been together in some sort of iteration since 1977. They perform a, jo- a genre of music known as Junkanoo, which is a type of music that's performed during steel parade street parades in the English-speaking Caribbean. It's these big things, and they write these songs and perform them specifically for these types of parades. The band was fairly popular because of these parades and also performed at various clubs all over the Bahamas. In the early 90s, an Atlantic Records A&R guy by the name of Steve Greenberg gets one of the Bahamas tapes and decides to send the band to an Atlantic subsidiary called Big Beat. And that's when they changed their name from High Voltage to the Bahamas. Steve Greenberg had an impressive career in the record industry. In addition to discovering the Baja Men, he's also responsible for discovering Hanson, the Jonas Brothers, and Josh Stone. And then he was one of the producers on Mbop along with the Dust Brothers, which I always forget. Like the Dust Brothers did Paul's Boutique for the Beastie Boys, a bunch of Beck albums, and then went on to do Mbop. It's the 90s, though, in a nutshell, isn't it? Like that is that is just such a 90s thing. I also just wonder, like, how do you even come back from that? You're like, yeah, I did all of this. And now I work at Home Depot. Not like there's anything wrong with that, but like, how do you, I mean, what do you follow that up with? Like heroin? I I don't know. I truly do not know. After stints at Atlantic, Mercury, and Polygram, Greenberg decides to start his own label, S-Curve Records, specifically to sign the Baja Men, who had been dropped at this point by Polygram. He asked the Baja Men to record a cover of the song called Who Let the Dogs Out? They're hesitant because it was already a hit for this Trinidadian singer by the name of Anselm Douglas in the late 90s. The evolution of the song's chorus and and who actually wrote it and deserves royalties is fascinating. In terms of who has performed the original song, there are people in Florida, New York, Canada, Trinidad, London, and many other places who claim to have written the song. Basically, there are several versions that were recorded with some variation of the chorus throughout the 90s. They start out in like Jacksonville, Florida. Some kids in the early 90s record a song that has a variation of the, of the Who Let the Dogs Out chorus. Then in 1994, there's a dance techno group called 20 Fingers. They release a track featuring a singer named Gillette. It's called You're a Dog. The chorus is Who Let Them Dogs Loose? Who, 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 who. And the song... Just do the real bark. Why are you trying to spare us? Like, who let them dogs? There you go. Uh, 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 uh. 
That just makes me think about basketball games. Like that's oh, all I ever think about. Truly, that, and that's why it became so famous in the U.S. So the chorus and, and the song, like despite having multiple people claim they wrote it, everyone has this common theme that the song was actually written as a female response to like the slut shaming that they dealt with from guys, aka the dogs in clubs and out and about. So it's like a reach. Hey, that's a yeah. reach. <laughs> But later, after these, you know, versions come out, there is there are some DJs in Canada who coined a tagline that they regularly use during their radio show and had a jingle that was like, who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who? And so this is around 1995. And then later, the Anselm Douglas version of this song is released. I'm not going to go into the rest of this history because there's just like too much there. Um, And I think it'll just make much more sense to have it in a medium post, which by the way, shameless plug for our medium blog, but great, uh, great inner or self spawn con, not inner spawn con (laughs) and moment of self accountability. Cause now I have to write this post. (laughs) I know. I mean, I will just play you this episode whenever I'm like, Oh, I think we should write something for the blog, Emily. So Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's coming for you. Know that. Of course. Um, So eventually Steve Greenberg hears a version of this song and he decides the Baja men need to record this. Additionally, I should add, there is another version of the song at the time that was released by a guy by the name of Chuck Smooth. And this version ends up getting played in 1998 by Mississippi State during their football games. And in 2000, the Seattle Mariners begin using the Baja Men version as a walk-up song for Joe Oliver. Then A-Rod, who was playing for the Mariners at the time, wants to use it as his walk-up song. And before they know it, that becomes their official victory song. And this was one of the seasons where the Mariners were were actually good. Yeah. So who let the dogs out? Cancel baseball. All MLB bad. It's so in addition to getting featured at all sorts of games all over the world, it's later featured in several movies, including Rugrats in Paris, which I forgot there was a saw Rugrats movie. Yeah, I didn't see the Paris one. Saw the original one in theaters, though. Um, it's around this time that the Baja Men's original members, uh, when they record this new version, this cover, they've recruited three younger members because the original vocalist, Nehemiah Held, had retired. So his nephew, Omerit, replaces him. And that's who you end up seeing on the album cover and the music video. Later in 2001, Anselm Douglas and his producer, Ossie Gurley, are sued by Patrick Stevenson and Leroy Williams, who were the radio DJs who had recorded a jingle of this chorus. They end up settling out of court uh, because they are able to show that Anselm Douglas had been working in the same studio in Toronto as them while they recorded the jingle. A bunch of lawsuits end up happening because of this. And so many, along with the disputed song's history and origins, inspired filmmaker Brent Hodge to create a documentary on the song's popularity. He started getting interested in Who Let the Dogs Out and all of the madness surrounding it by trying to make it his mission to edit the citations for the song's Wikipedia article. Because the page at the time was a mess and the history was very unclear. So began his deep dive into Who Let the Dogs Out for nearly a decade. Truly the most fascinating rabbit hole that I have ever gone down. Um, But since Who Let the Dogs Out, the Baja Men have gone on to release three more albums, have had covers that ended up on a few Disney compilations, made an appearance in The Bachelorette when one of the seasons took them to the Bahamas, recorded a metal version of Who Let the Dogs Out. I was trying to find out. Was that the season with the pigs? 
No, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that might be it. But I, okay, I should that's have gotta be okay. No, no, no. It's I mean for there was our so league, much for our fantasy league sake. Yes, you should have clarified that. But I should clarify. I, it. Uh, yeah, I I don't remember what season that is, but it's got to be the one with the the pig island, which is great, uh, amazing, is amazing, uh, iconic reality show scene. <laughs> They um, ended up recording a metal version of Who Let the Dogs Out with a band called oh, Our Last joking. Night. I and like off recorded... the train. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, they recorded a song called Let's Go in 2019, dedicated to what? the college teams in the final four. Oh, um, God. That's, that's really the Bahamen. We never quite understood or answered the question, Who Let the Dogs Out? Um, but here is where I am, and I cannot believe I, I spent hours researching this song. Are you saying that the documentary is worth it? I remember when it came out, and I was like, that sounds kind of interesting, but I never, I kind of forgot about it. Would you I recommend actually, it? I would recommend it. It's an hour long. It was hmm. super interesting, kind of fascinating in terms of just like how many like origin stories there are of this song. Well, speaking of things that are less intense and uh, about 60 minutes, um, I don't know where that second part comes from because that's actually not true. Maybe her career. uh, Yeah, no, I don't know. I was thinking about making a joke there, but I don't think it's going to work. I'm just going to abandon that and talk to you about my second pick, which is Hoku, Another Dumb Blonde from 2000. Hoku might be famous to a certain demographic as Don Ho's daughter, but to our group of friends, she is famous for singing about a burrito in a love song. (laughs) <laughs> but the world at large was introduced to Hoku, which is Hawaiian for star, when her debut single, Another Dumb Blonde, was used for the movie Snow Day in 2000, which is a movie that I had to watch for a bad movie review column that I used to have. And boy, is that movie not great and very weird. And it has, um, what's his face? The mayor in Shit's Creek is the snowplow guy. Oh, Chris Elliott, like, yeah. Yes, Chris Elliott. And he is maybe a murderer? I don't know. They kind of try to do this like Dennis the Menace kind of like real life consequence villain turn. But then they're like, JK, this is a Nickelodeon movie. We didn't mean any of that. We meant have a snow day, kids. Yes, here is a future E from Entourage's girlfriend, Emmanuel Chicory, or I think that's how you say your last name. Anyway, snow day is a bad movie is what I'm trying to tell all of you. Funny enough, both of her quote-unquote big singles were featured in movies. Perfect Day was on the Legally Blonde soundtrack, another blonde reference. We get it, Hoku. There isn't much to report in terms of stats since this song didn't do particularly well, even though this is her only song to break the top 40. Another Dumb Blonde peaked at 27 on the Hot 100, and the other charts that she peaked on were... Not as good as this number, so I didn't include them. The music video is very funny. It is obviously 17 videos mashed up into one. It looks like part alloy commercial shoot in the middle of LA. Oh, so it looks for like the opposite sure. of cold. You just then, got that like perfect essence of that mo- of that music video. Alloy. Right? It's, like, it's it's those pants and like the long sleeve shirt with like the vaguely Hawaiian mm-hmm. design mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. And and obviously mm-hmm. because they shot it in LA, it doesn't look cold at all, even though there's a snow-based movie tie-in. At one point, she's literally just singing to us seated in a chair. She's just sitting in the chair in the middle of a room, just like, now that's I'm blood. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you're not even doing anything. You're just sitting there. She's in the snow for like one second and then the next second she's like at the beach. It's very confusing and yet it's still iconic. I don't make the rules. She is now married to her former manager and they have a baby. That is a theme that continues throughout some of these other songs that I'll be talking about. But yeah, there's not much to report. I thought there was going to be more there. And I guess maybe in retrospect, I could have cut this and kept the darkness instead. But I still, you know, I have a soft spot for Hoku, even though 
she just had like super straight long blonde hair and bangs and that was like her whole personality and none of her songs really were that big commercially but I think within you know suburban white girls of a certain age she's still very popular kind of sort of like a like a d-list lizzie mcguire oh for sure i mean like we i think we did like the categorization of boy bands in one of our episodes and i would put her yeah in the d-list category of the blonde singers like we didn't even touch on her during our blondes episode because there was just so much content on christina mandy and jessica and also, why bother? I mean, honestly, yeah. this is the next person on my list, but like we, I would have included Willa Ford over Hoku in the blondes if we had to add another singer to the mix because oh, Willa yeah. Ford was much more of a contender than Hoku, who was still sort of marketed a little bit like to a Disney crowd, you know, even and though. And was there like a Christian edge to her too, if I recall correctly, or am I making I think that it up? Became, I think that became more pronounced over time. But at okay. first, I think it was just very like, I'm Don Ho's daughter and I want to be a, a wholesome pop star. So she was like, sort of like Jessica Simpson, but um, without them, I don't know, maybe because Don Ho has a lot of respect in the industry or, or something, but without her being like wholesome, but like sexed up, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. what they did to Jessica Simpson, where it's like, here, wear this super tight top and also like have abs, but you're Christian. So make sure you tell everybody that. <laughs> That's yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. My next pick is very like complete opposite of another dumb blonde, but it's, uh, it's closing time by Sunny Sonic. <laughs> definitely the opposite complete opposite but i picked this song because i think it's a great example of the many late 90s alternative song one hit wonders i actually still like this song and also because dan wilson the lead singer has gone on to have a fascinating career as a songwriter for many big artists semisonic is a band out of minneapolis they're made up of dan wilson john munson and jacob still slichter They formed in 1995 after Wilson and Munson's former band Trip Shakespeare broke up. They released an EP titled Pressure in 96, made a major label debut, Great Divide on MCA Records in 1996. That album, by the way, features the song FNT, which stands for Fascinating New Thing, which is featured in the paintball scene during 10 Things I Hate About You. Yep. Released in 1998, Closing Time was the lead single single from Semisonic's second major label album, Strangely Fine. Wilson was originally writing the song about just literally the song's title, Closing Time. His band used to have to close all their sets using the song If I Run from their first album. The other bandmates were just like getting super sick of always repeating the song. So he was like, let me just write a new song for us to like close our sets on, hence Closing Time. Halfway through writing the song, he realized the song it held a double meaning for him because at the time his wife was actually pregnant with their first kid. And so he started writing about how their lives were going to change. And over time, he realized that it was, you know, partially it's closing time, sure, but it's also talking about, you know, the line every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Like it's closing things, but like ending things, but at the same time, new beginnings, so on and so forth. During his wife's pregnancy, she had a lot of complications and their daughter was born several months premature, weighing only 11 ounces. And as a result, the baby had to stay in the hospital, which is where the line, I know who I want to take me home comes from. Additional lyrics that allude to the birth include, this this room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. It's supposed to be a metaphor for his wife's womb, which is clever yet creepy. I don't know. Yeah, that's Uh, that's going to be an ick from me, dog. I don't (laughs) think so. 
the song was not released as an official single, just as a radio promo, which meant that it, one, never charted on the Billboard 100 due to ineligibility, but two, meant that a CD single was never pressed for it, which at the time means that people were buying full albums. So it goes on to become a huge radio hit, getting to number 11 on the Billboard Airplay chart. Again, weird Billboard subcharts. There and are so many so of them. Fucking many. They come out of the fucking woodwork whenever we look up this shit. I don't understand. Oh, I couldn't, yeah. And not heard some of these. Uh, because again, there was no CD single. The album went platinum just on this song, basically. Uh, Closing Time would end up being nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Song in 1999, but obviously Semisonic never repeated the success they achieved. As for Dan Wilson, Closing Time would put him on the map as a songwriter. He started his songwriting career a few years later, writing for uh, Evan and Jaren, which you might remember that like group of twin brothers, Evan and Jaren. They like sang that song Crazy for This Girl. He didn't write that song, but he wrote one of their other songs. Anyway. I'm like, I, I don't know her. (laughs) He ends up co-writing Not Ready to Make Nice for the Dixie Chicks, or now the Chicks, just one of the many songs he wrote on their Grammy-winning album, Taking the Long Way. They won the Grammy for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best Country Performance for that song. He then co-writes Someone Like You with Adele, which won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Solo Performance in 2012, and and as of 2018 has sold over 17 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best selling digital singles of all time. Additionally, he has written for John Legend, Jason Mraz, Fanagram, Leon Bridges, Celine Dion, JoJo, Weezer, Panic at the Disco, Spoon, My Morning Jacket, Birdie, Leanne Rhymes, Taylor Swift, Pink, etc., etc. Truly an amazing second career. Good for him. Yeah. Did he end up having more kids? He did, yeah. And in fact, he even wrote some solo stuff about moving to the valley because his family moved to <laughs> his, his family moved from Minneapolis to the LA area in 2011. Okay, thought, everybody needs appreciate to that. relax about ragging on the valley. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's great for raising kids. Everybody's such a hater on the valley. I will no longer stand for it, even though I have zero stake. And I also left. So who knows? But <laughs> I don't think that she's from the Valley, but I've definitely seen her in Burbank before. My number three, Willa Ford. I, I want to be bad. Oh, my God. OK, what doing research for this episode has taught me that maybe I really like this song and it's like a bop. Honestly, I just need to read the title and the song immediately starts to play in my head. And there's only one other song on this list that has that power. And it wasn't Mambo number five. Um, as I just sung to you, I want to be bad. And also um, some other choice lyrics. I'm losing all my cool. I'm about to break the rules. And I want to be bad with your bae, bae. Oh, the song is great. I've listened to it more times than I care to admit on this podcast. But you might also remember this song from the runway scene in What a Girl Wants, which oh, is also an, a great choice. Yes, I had to include that factoid. But Willa Ford was born Amanda Lee Ford in Ruskin, Florida. She trained as a classical opera singer, which I think you can hear it at times in this song, especially towards the end. She like holds some notes and you're like, oh, she's not just, you know, another synthesized pop act. So she also learned music theory in addition to being classically trained in opera singing from the ages of 12 to 17, but didn't like the the rigidity of opera. So she decided to make quote unquote fun music instead. Because she started her career at the same time as Britney, Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera, and Mandy Moore, her record label she was working with asked her to make something more wholesome. But instead, she made I Want to Be Bad. Uh, She tells the story uh, this way. Uh, Quote, 
I went to my writing partners and said, I want to write something where I just want to be bad. And they were all dying. They were like, this is hilarious. The, the record label is going to kill us. Let's write a song about you being bad. Ford goes on to say that the record label liked the song, but wanted a softer, aka more cheesy pre-chorus. But then a record executive from a different label, Jason Flom, heard her original version, saw her potential, and the rest is history. He signed her. I Want to Be Bad became a smash. It reached number four on the Billboard dance charts, 11 on the top 40, all before or all all when she was 20 years old. Sorry. Wow. I know. Right. And not like I didn't think she was young at the time or even in rewatching it now. I just I you know, you just have the perspective where you're like, oh, that's a lot of pressure and stress um, and accolades at 20. So I can only imagine the stress and the pressure on like the follow up. Yes. Willa Ford very recently had a good interview with Danny Pellegrino on Everything Iconic. She was promoting a show that I'll talk about in one second, but she goes into more detail there than I'm about to about how 9-11 torpedoed her sophomore album. So Willa was here, her debut album, did all right, but none of the singles managed to take off in the same way that I Want to Be Bad did. But it wasn't just the single or 9-11. What really ended up kind of fucking her over for a lack of a better term was that her record company had a lot of high turnover and that caused her to end up in some sort of limbo between A&R reps and executives and like the person one day the person that signed you who loves you and is championing you gets fired and then you get their assistant or whatever it's a tale as old as time TLC can tell you and you just get passed around and no one knows what to do with you and you weren't their client to begin with so they're not super invested in seeing you or your career through So she was in limbo for forever. And then during that time, it forced her to kind of take a stock of how much she really enjoys making music, if this is going to be the process. And so she decided to exit music forever, or at least she thought at the time that she could come back. But as she goes on to talk about in that same interview on Everything Iconic, is that the further away you get from it, the harder it is to come back. So over the years... She started her hand at acting, best known to me for playing Anna Nicole Smith in a Lifetime biopic. But sometime after her appearance on Dancing with the Stars, she became a full-time interior decorator, or I'm sorry, interior designer. And then she started W4 Designs. And last year, she was on E's house flipping series, Flip It Like Disick with Scott Disick. And so that's what she's up to now. And she still loves I Want to Be Bad. And that music video is great. It also has a rap from... Royce to five nine, which I completely forgot about until he showed up. But I loved how it embraced how cheesy it was. It's a lot of her like dancing, and it's her living out like different fantasies. I mean, it it makes you kind of uncomfortable now when she gets pulled over by the cops for you know a bunch of different reasons. But eventually, she ends up taking the cop car and like joyriding around. And then she strips dressed as like a sexy cop for like some dude that she thinks is hot. It's a great music video. It's it, it's very 2001 when it came out like summer 2001 and it's still i will argue this a good song Add it, to it a is playlist. a good song it'll make you happy i you know i enjoy it i appreciate that it was there's some humor to it like she always seemed very cool and i can't i've always said that i need to listen to that episode of everything iconic so i will certainly do that this week she's a great interview because she's very game to talk about everything and she also talks about meeting all of her other, you know, quote unquote, blonde contenders, with the exception of Christina Aguilera, I think they just weren't in the same circles. But she had very positive experiences like meeting Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson and many more. And she said it wasn't competitive at all and that they were all very supportive of each other and cool. And she doesn't really look back on anything with any sort of regret. But yeah, 9-11, you know, took out Lou Vega's <laughs> sophomore album and Willa Ford's. And so it's interesting to always kind of hear about that because... 
at the time, you didn't realize how much stuff got shelved. And also there weren't really any other means beyond a traditional label like you have now where you can just release it onto Spotify or publish it to Bandcamp or whatever you want to do with your your music. But back then it was like you had to wait for a label to give you the green light. And so when you're waiting around, waiting around, and then the person who is championing your stuff gets fired, you're waiting around for possibly ever, unless you are as big of a star as like a Britney Spears. No, for sure. And I remember like around that time, I believe Jimmy Eat World was releasing their album Bleed American, and they had to change the name of the album because of 9-11. Um, which I believe it just became like Jimmy Eat World, if I recall correctly. But over time, they've, you know, re-released it as Bleed American. But yeah, I mean, that really did, you know, 9-11, I think, changed a lot of of the kind of release schedules for people. And, you know, subsequently, after 9-11, it's, you know, just two years later that iTunes kind of hits the map. And like, yeah. things just start changing a lot in these uh, in the record industry. My next group is someone who, much like Willa Ford, didn't really have much of a release after their kind of one big hit and album, uh, City High. What would you do? Some people might argue that City High was a two-hit wonder, but 20 years later, we're not talking about their follow-up single, Caramel. We're just talking about what would you do if your son was at home crying all alone on the bedroom floor. And I... Oh my God, I hate the song. This band is fascinating because there are the origin story for one of their members is great. And then the trajectory of where one of them is now is fantastic as well. So the band's origins start with Ryan Toby, who co-starred with Lauren Hill in Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, which, as we all know, is the superior of the Sister Act movies. He's the guy who sings Oh Happy Day. A few years later, he was signed to DJ Jazzy Jeff's A Touch of Jazz production company in Philly. But couldn't get a record deal because he was a singer slash rapper. And back then you kind of had to pick one of the two lanes. Meanwhile, Will Smith is starting to record Big Willie Style, his big album, after filming Men in Black. And DJ Jazzy Jeff plays him some of Ryan Toby's tracks. Will Smith ends up bringing him on as a writer for Big Willie Style. And he writes a couple of the songs, including Miami, which ends up being a monster hit. So good on Ryan Toby for getting some royalties there. He gets introduced to Robbie Pardio, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who had attended the same high school as him in New New Jersey, as well as his then-girlfriend, Claudette Ortiz. Toby and Pardio start collaborating as a duo, ultimately performing for Wyclef John, who remembered him from the Sister Act movies, and get signed to Wyclef's Booga Basement label, which was a subsidiary of Interscope. Wyclef's cousin and label partner Jerry Wanda hears Ortiz, his uh, the girlfriend of Partio, on some of the tracks, um, and insists that they become a trio, sort of like a new Fugees, since they already had a duo on the label. The song "What Would You Do" is first featured on the soundtrack for the movie Life in 1999, and that version didn't have the hold up sample that was mm-hmm. from Dr. Dre's The Next Episode. So it ends up not making much of a big splash, but it later becomes their first single off of their self-titled debut album, which was released in 2001. Song will go on to number eight on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, number one on the Billboard Rap Chart, and was nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Performance by a Group or Duo in 20, in 2002, but lost to Destiny's Child Survivor. They later tried to record a second a follow-up to their first album, but were heavily rushed by the label and lit, and then things in the group weren't going so well. So they disbanded in 2003. There's a little bit of a Fleetwood Mac-like uh, side to City High. I don't really know when uh, Partio and Ortiz broke up, but around 2003-ish is when Ryan Toby and Claudette Ortiz start dating. 
Um, so that likely didn't fare well for the chemistry. The two of them would go on to get married in 2004, but split up a few years later. Ortiz would go on to have a solo career and star on TV One's reality show, R&B Divas Los Angeles, which also features Shantae Moore, who we talked about in our Now episode with her song, mm. Shantae's Got a Man. <laughs> Shantae's Got a Man. Great song. Brian Toby <laughs> has had a great career as a writer and wrote Caught Up by Usher, along with two other songs from his Confessions album. Another also written a great for- album, great song. Fantastic. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wonderful. Along with other songs uh, for Kevin Little, Ruben Stuttered, Mary J. Blige, Brian McKnight, LL Cool J, Jill Scott, Justin Bieber, and Fifth Harmony. So Ryan Toby, much like Dan Wilson, maybe didn't have much of a career with his band other than a one-hit wonder, but has gone on to do well for himself just fine as a singer-songwriter. And that is City High. I vaguely recall City High. I feel like they were on some sort of compilation CD that was given to me, and I immediately forgot about them until you brought them up now. So I'm glad that uh, they were have found other sort of success post career. Well, my number four is um, well, I don't know. I-, I think if you do not think that my neck, my back didn't run so WAP could fly, you do not know your history <laughs> because my number four song is Kia, my neck, my back, lick it from 2002. Kia initially didn't want to be a rapper. She considered herself a singer, but rap seemed like the easiest way into the industry. So during a prison stint in between 2000 and 2001, Kia wrote what would become her debut album, Thug Misses. My Neck, My Back was recorded at Grooveland Studios in Clearwater, Florida. She is an army brat, but she grew up mostly in Florida. And My Neck, My Back was released as a single in April of 2002. And due to the explicit lyrics, it reached only number 42 on the Hot 100, but reached number four in the UK. But that was two and years after. one in our hearts, let's, let's I mean, obviously. Um, and it reached number four in the UK, but only two years after its US release, which was odd to me, but well, I had to include it anyway. So the lyrics, which describe how she wants to get the best tag from a thug, but also includes eating ass because we are inclusive. There was a heavily edited version for the radio, much like Cardi's verse on WAP. It just ends up kind of being like silence and like rap sounds in place of the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you heard WAP's edited versions? Like, I want you to, uh, in a, it, woo! 
you know that you can feel yourself getting the edited version, I think, is really what happens. Yeah. Because you're just like, there should be words here. And she's just being like, "Mm -mm." and you're like, I know that Cardi raps. Like, I don't understand what's happening in this verse. Anyway, regardless of the song, regardless, the song has still endured. Regardless, this song is still an enduring success story. But in 2002, in an interview with MTV News, Kia said of the song's success at the time, I guess the world is just nasty and freaky like that. (laughs) It's not even my favorite song. And I was kind of surprised that the song is that this is the song that everybody's jumped on. The song is nothing compared to my other music. It's like, that's what the world is about today. So, hey, that works for me. And that's sort of her attitude from what I gathered in her long form verse vice article that I got to read where she gets into her, her background and how she had kids really, really young and she married their father and they were together up until, I don't know, I think it was like 2016 or maybe 2015 when uh, that vice article came out. So they've been together for a long time and it also gets more into depth into what she's doing now because she she still does music and she still releases them uh, through her own record label, but she also does other stuff and I'll get to that in one second. Uh, My Neck, My Back is obviously an iconic song and it stands the test of time. NPR included it in 2018 on a list of 200 greatest songs by 21st century women. It's constantly covered by contemporary artists. Like I'm pretty sure that Miley did a cover of it not too long ago. The music video was directed by Diane Martell, who has made appearances in previous music centric episodes as a prolific music director. And the music video was released in the spring of 2002, but the UK has a completely different version. It doesn't feature Kia at all. Instead, depicts a group of white bikini-clad models washing a Hummer H2 in a seductive manner while they lip-sync the words. So, what? yeah, I know. And I remember that version, too, because I did see that version on MTV France at some point. And I was like, this is not the music video. The music video is fucking tight. It's like her and like her homegirls at like a fucking pool party. And they're just dancing and there are dudes like giving them foot rubs and like dancing with them. And I just, I mean, what a fucking iconic video. She really is just like relaxing the whole time. She's like, here's what you're going to get. Here's what you're going to do. First, you're going to get on your knees. And I'm like, I love this song so much. This song is the best. (laughs) As I mentioned, she had a great long form interview with Vice a few years ago. And It taught me a lot of things, but the thing that I will take away from it is that she is a multi-hyphen threat, and she has written a self-help book called Love Yourself, Ho, which I would very much like to read. She also has a follow-up to that, but she thinks that the world isn't ready. Um, I love Kia. This interview with her is hilarious. She is truly a character. She is like, I mean, I'm not sure what state or city she's currently living in, but she'd make a great real housewife because... At one point, the interviewer is talking to her about her previous arrests, and she's like, look, you know, do I like being arrested? No, but am I in the wrong, and should I be arrested? Yes. And they're like, yeah, even the last time you were arrested? She's like, no, I don't think that was deserved. And there's a long pause. She's like, wait, actually, you know what? No, it was probably deserved. <laughs> so <laughs> she just seems to like not take herself very seriously. And her kids, because as she even talks about in the article, essentially grew up with her, are integral to her, like, production like music producing promotion they help her with everything and they're just kind of like a little team which i think is very sweet um and yeah buck yeah kia i recently added this song and a bunch of trina songs to a watt playlist that i created and uh it's a great time for me i mean except right now because it's hot and so anytime i move any faster than a glacial pace i am immediately sweating so it'll just have to wait 
I will be subscribing to this playlist. The next song is uh, Oops, Hit Em Up Style, or excuse me, <clears throat> my next song is Hit Em Up Style, Oops, by Blue Cantrell. <laughs> a great <laughs> song. A great song. This song is still a bop. Um, Blue Cantrell was born Tiffany Cobb, started out as a professional backing vocalist for Sean Puffy Combs, was also a member of a girl group called Eighth Avenue, which was put together by Teddy Riley, who's best known as basically the father of New Jack Swing, and was a member of the R&B group Sky and Blackstreet. The group, the girl group was featured on one of Blackstreet's albums, but when Riley left Blackstreet to reform Guy, Blackstreet was dropped by Interscope, and then 8th Avenue kind of just, like, went nowhere. Cantrell was then uh, introduced... A common, a common theme I keep seeing, too, oh, by yes. the way. Yes, yes, yes. Cantrell was then introduced by Usher and a backup dancer friend to Tricky Stewart, who decided to work with her as a solo artist after a recording session. She was then offered a record contract with Arista Records and signed by L.A. Reid after he heard her sing one of the songs she wrote. She went on to, and he was a a mentor to her as well. So, and all of us know who L.A. Reid is, um, huge in the 90s, like R&B and hip hop scene, basically put Atlanta on the map. She, Blue Cantrell, will go on to record her debut album, So Blue, with Tricky Stewart, as well as producers-writers Dallas Austin, best known for writing, producing Boys to Men, several LaFace Records artists, and TLC's Unpretty, Pink's Don't Let Me Get Me, etc., etc. Um, and she also worked with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who are probably most famous for producing most of John- Janet Jackson's hit singles in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. The single, uh, Hit Em Up Style, Oops!, <laughs> was written and produced by Dallas Austin and was released in April 2001, features a sample of Frank Sinatra's The Boy's Night Out. Uh, The song would peak at number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 behind Usher's You Remind Me. There's a lot of Usher that comes up in this uh, episode and just kind of... He will come up for me as well, so yeah, I know. Excellent. So uh, that happens in July of 2001, hits number one on the Billboard US mainstream top 40. Again, million charts for everything. Uh, The song would go on to be nominated for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance and Best R&B Song. Her follow-up album, Bittersweet, would feature that song Breathe, which features Sean Paul. And the song was fairly successful in the US, peaking at number 70, but really was a much bigger hit in the UK, which it topped the chart there. Um, And she ends up having a lot more success at that point internationally. After the second album, Arista merged with J Records following Sony and BMG's merger. And she was in a position to re-sign with the label after this merger, but chose not to pursue it when L.A. re-resigned because he was her mentor. Independently, she started working on a follow-up album, but in 2014, some like unfortunate things happened. She was taken in for psychological evaluation after being found running around the streets of Santa Monica at 2 a.m. screaming that someone was trying to kill her and had poisoned gas. Since then, she hasn't really released much music, but occasionally tours in the UK where she's had more success. Couldn't find much about her other than she, that she's been a part of some tours with Nelly and Fat Man Scoop on their UK dates. Um, sadly, we, there hasn't been much from Blue Cantrell. It looks like her social presence hasn't really been updated much since 2017. So hope she's doing okay. Um, but Hit Em Up Style is still a fantastic song. Will gladly blast it whenever I hear it. A great song. And also, if you watch Real Housewives of Potomac, or if you pronounce it like Gabourey Sidibe, Potomac, you <laughs> will notice that Giselle Bryant, who is a hilarious 
uh, featured housewife, her and Blue Cantrell share a very similar look. And so every time you mention Blue Cantrell or even just hit them up style, because I read a recap where they call Giselle in it, hit them up style. (laughs) (laughs) So it's all I can picture. But I do remember when that happened because I do believe I was either going to school in Santa Monica or like had friends that had heard about it and told me it's very sad, but I do hope that she's doing better. And I think that her touring in the UK is a sign of um, a positive sign, probably. But yeah, yeah, that song, it is iconic and it lives on forever regardless. So of course, course. (laughs) oops, is all I'll say to that. Oh, God. Okay, maybe I should have put this up higher, but I guess I didn't realize I put my notes like in um, chronological order. So my number five is Tattoo all the things she said. I think it's extremely rich that one of the most homophobic countries in the world exploded queer themes to make money, or maybe it's completely on brand for them. Who's to say? This group and song are very problematic. They were then, and they currently are now, if not more so. Oh. Something that does not get better with time at all is this song and this music video. But I think a lot of millennials remember their VMA performance, and the song did do really, really well, especially for a Russian group. So we got to talk about this insane song. All the Things She Said is a song recorded by the Russian music duo Tattoo, uh, lowercase t, uppercase a, uppercase t, lowercase u. No real reason like for that. Like a Delia's catalog. <laughs> yeah, but the Delia's catalog went like the every other letter. This is like the, the at in the middle is capitalized and the t uh, is uh-huh, lowercase. Uh-huh. Doesn't matter. Anyway, their first English language album was called... <laughs> I tried to I tried to erase this because I was like nobody knows what like 200 kilometers per hour like fucking means at all but apparently their album was 200 kilometers per hour in the wrong lane and it was released in 2002 all the things she said was released by Universal in August of that year it reached number 20 on the Hot 100 and they're the first Russian act to have a US top 40 single so the song was not written by the tattoo ladies. It was written by a couple of people, and I'm going to probably butcher their name, but it's fine. We have Sergio Galloyan, Trevor Horn, Martin Kirznebaum, Valerie Polenko, and Elena Keeper, who you need to know Elena Keeper the most. The original story is based on a dream that Keeper had while she was at the dentist. She dreamed that she was kissing a woman and then woke up screaming, I've lost my mind, which is not (laughs) funny. But you're just like, that's a fucking crazy place to start a song from is you just being openly homophobic in the middle of your dentist appointment. I feel like, you know what, that's that's being Russian in a fucking nutshell. So the eventual manager of Tattoo is a man named Ivan Shapovalov. He decided to use her weird fucked up dream from her dentist appointment. Fucked up in the sense that like she woke up screaming, I've lost my mind instead of just being like not saying anything at all because it's a dream and like just fucking calm down. Anyway, he decided to use that to evoke the theme of lesbianism, which like I don't even know how you evoke a theme that's like explicitly the fucking theme. But again, Russians, that's Russians for you. Lyrically, it it obviously focuses on two fucking girls developing feelings for each other. Or at least that's what they say. I feel like the lyrics are thin at best. And I think saying that um, it's about people developing feelings for each other is extremely, it's a big reach. Like your arms must be very tired. Critically, the song received mixed negative reviews. Some commended the production and the lyrical content. Others, a lot of American critics especially, called it a gimmick and very suggestive and exploitative. And all those critics that called it a gimmick were not wrong. Yulia Volkova and Lena Katina, whoa. 
I didn't realize that rhymed until I read it out loud. Before they were tattooed, they auditioned for a children's group called Nepodizi. I think that accent was not correct. Forgive me. But Voluva was removed from the group a year later, and Russian tabloids claimed it was because she had misbehavior like stripping, smoking, drinking alcohol, and swearing. <laughs> Which I was like, <laughs> misbehavior? Okay. They let some time pass, time lapses, and the producer, the Russian producers, uh, Shapovalv and his buddy, Alexander Votinsky, held an audition for two teenage girls where Volkova and Katina auditioned and won the part, but they didn't, even though they knew each other, they didn't know that either one was auditioning or what they were auditioning for. After their Russian debut was a large success in Europe, selling over a million copies, Shapovalv decided to reach a deal with the Russian division of Universal and Interscope. What tattoos probably most remember for is the music video for the song directed by Shapovalov, and it was shot in Moscow. The music video opens with a crowd of disapproving Russians standing in the rain in front of or behind a chain link fence. It's not totally clear for whose perspective we're supposed to be looking at this through. But slowly we see two wet Catholic schoolgirls, and then it gets very male gazy and gross from there. The whole thing is very uncomfortable to watch in the same way that blue is the warmest color is very uncomfortable to watch. It's obviously directed by a man so that other men can jerk it to it. The whole fence analogy ends up kind of coming across more of like a boy in the striped pajamas than like sexy and whatever disapproving. But whatever, man, this scene, this dude seems like a fucking creep if you ask me. The video premiered in Russia and in Europe in December of 2000 on MTV. And to bring it to current times in February of 2011, Katy Perry released E.T. And according to several music publications, the composition and the rhythm of Katy's single was very, very similar to this tattoo song. There were threats of a lawsuit, but ultimately nothing came of it. Um, one of the members, you know, the one that's the stripping, smoking, swearing one, she came out and um, labeled herself a fucking homophobe. So I didn't really want to bring that up or talk about what they're up to because I don't fucking care what homophobes are up to. So um, yeah, that's about it for Tattoo. It was a smash hit. And I believe they did have another single, which you could also argue was just as big, but it didn't crack the top 40 the way that all the things she said did. And yeah, I mean, people love what Catholic school girls, I guess. Yeah. Mm. (sighs) Russia. Uh, (laughs) My next song, again, very different. Uh, This was a late addition to my list, but I think it does a great job of exemplifying a, this song was a minor hit, but then was featured in X commercial and became a huge hit example that comes up with a lot of one hit wonders. And that's Days Go By by Dirty Vegas, released in 2002. So Dirty Vegas was a British or is a British house group that was formed in 2001. Um, And the members are Ben Harris, Paul Harris, who have no relation, and Steve Smith, like really the most generic names of all time. Turns out the song Days Go By was, in fact, their debut single. It was originally released in the UK in 2001, made it to number 27 on the UK charts. The music video was filmed in L.A., and this was one of these music videos I had forgotten about until rewatching it tonight. Um, tells the story with the words on the screen of an older man who break dances in front of Crony's Sandwich Shop in East LA once a year. Pardon? Is your pardon? Is it Crony's? No, the an old man break dancing in front of a sandwich shop is yes. really what I'm stuck on, to be honest. Yeah, he just like lays down the cardboard and starts break dancing. And so a crowd like it felt very gorilla Spike Jones style. Like it re- reminds me a little bit of Praise You in some ways. Um, so he's break dancing in front of this sandwich shop. He does this once a year on the same day from sunrise to sunset. And he does this because he hopes it'll bring back his lost girlfriend, 
who gave him the orange sneakers that we see him wearing at the beginning and ultimately left him because he could not stop breakdancing. At one point, we see we the camera pans to this old man's Chuck Taylors that are, they have duct tape on them, they're tattered, and then all of a sudden they look new again. The camera pans up to the younger man breakdancing, which is supposed to be him as a younger man. The music just stops at one point, and the young breakdancer stops dancing while few spectators start to voice their thoughts about the young woman's fate and speculate that she may have died or maybe just never showed up. The camera then pans back to the dancer, now the older man again, dancing in a suit. At the end of the day, the older man catches a brief glimpse of his girlfriend's younger self, picks up his belongings, and then leaves. A Mitsubishi executive went on, would go on to see this music video when it was first released, tracked down the band because they liked the song so much, and wanted to procure the rights. A year later, it's featured in a Mitsubishi commercial for the 2003 Eclipse with a woman dancing in the front seat. <laughs> and after this ad airs, a New York radio station starts playing the track, and then it would go on to peak at number 14 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, reappear on the U.K. charts at number 16, and go on to win the 2003 Grammy Award for Best Dance Recording. Also, apparently, and I'm not sure how you track this, American brand awareness for the brand Mitsubishi went from 44% to 60% after this song became a hit. Since this, the band has gone on to release a few albums here and there, broke up for a bit, got back together with just two of the members. Um, re- they did a few remixes for Madonna and Justin Timberlake, but that's really Dirty Vegas. I feel like I confused them with a different Vegas group. Mm. Oh my God. But they were, br- but they ended up being like Irish or something. Interesting. I can't remember what the name is because obviously they were another one hit wonder and they played a festival circuit during the time when I was going to a lot of music festivals. And I remember when they came and addressed the crowd and they had Irish accents. I was like, what the fuck? I thought you guys were from Vegas. <laughs> anyway, moving right into my number six pick is Amari One Thing. This song could come out today and still be a fucking hit. It's just as catchy as I want to be bad, but is um, lyrically much better. I was so excited when this song and Amari came out because I thought she was going to be the next Aaliyah. She still puts out music, but her career didn't quite take off in the way that I thought it should have. Like, she should have been a way bigger star. At least that's what I had assumed that they were gearing her up for. But I think, similar to Willa Ford, she had a little bit of label interference that sort of caused her to not kind of quite take off the way that she should have. Because she had all of the makings of, like, a great... R&B star. I really feel like they can't believe they fucking fumbled that. Anyway, it all starts when Amari was studying at Georgetown and she was into, she was introduced to Rich Harrison, famous for producing Crazy in Love and Mary J. Blige songs, at least at the time that she met him. And in an interview, Amari described meeting Rich for the first time, said that she agreed to meet him in a public location because she didn't know him. They met at a McDonald's parking lot and Rich played some tracks for Amari. She sang along and they immediately knew that they had a connection and something special. Rich decided to develop her as a talent, which led to her getting signed by Columbia Records. According to Amory, one thing was written about how, quote, there's always one thing that keeps you attracted to someone, no matter what they do or how they act. There's that one undeniable thing that keeps you coming back. But what makes the song really memorable is a sample from the New Orleans funk band, The Meters, that it, even though her label didn't get the song at the time, the syncopated drum loop from The Meters would go on to influence a lot of pop songs in 2005. The label complained that the song was too linear and that they needed the chorus to be bigger, quote unquote. Each time that they'd tweak it and submit a new version, Columbia told them that the song sounded unfinished. They were unable to specify what needed to be changed. The label continued to refuse to release one thing. In Amory's words, quote, people just weren't getting it. 
After six months of back and forth, Amory and Rich decided to leak it to radio where it was well received by DJs and listeners alike. Turns out Columbia was actually just trying to hang on to the song because JLo wanted it for her album Rebirth. Because she forced the label to commit to her and this single, they ended up having to add it last minute to the Hitch soundtrack to give it like a place to live. JLo got over it when Rich gave her Get Right, which was an Usher cast off, but nonetheless still a banger that did very well for JLo. One thing went on to peak at number eight on the Hot 100 and number four in the UK and became Amory's first and only top 10 single and her obviously her biggest single. It's also certified gold as a remix featuring EVE, the one, the only. Amory was nominated that year for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance in 2006, but lost to Mariah's We Belong Together. Her most recent album was released in 2018 and she went on tour last year. She also married her manager. <laughs> so... <laughs> It sounds like because she kind of probably pissed off some Columbia people by just leaking her track before it was even acceptable to, quote unquote, like leak things, no matter how staged they are. I think that she might not have um, that might have given her any favors in the long run. But one thing I rewatched, the music video is still super cute. I would have cut all of the parts of her rolling around in lingerie in bed that don't do anything for anybody and go back to that big band situation that she has set up in the very beginning where she walks in after she's walking down the street very similar to Beyonce and Crazy in Love yeah down an alley I was say the and beat, like, even the beat it's the same is it the same like drum line that's or or beat that's sampled as Crazy I, in Love I did not look up if Crazy in Love also samples the meters but I would doubt that I don't think that or Rich Harris would do that I mean not bite himself I don't think that would happen but I do find it interesting they were trying to kind of market her like another Beyonce I think there's probably some more stuff on the record label side where they kind of dropped the promotion and handling of her image and tried to make her too much like a Beyonce or someone like that instead of letting her be whatever artist she was going to be but the music video is great because she walks in you know off the street very like crazy in love or whatever but then she gets in this performance space and there's this big live band playing and she's sort of like dancing with them and like kind of also directing the song and I just thought that it was like such a great start to her career and the dance is fun it's obviously clearly inspired by Chicago a little bit because there's like a part where she's dancing of naturally in a bikini top and like a weird page boy kind of hat and in the background it's like a bunch of other backup dancers but they're all like red backlit sort of like the the prison scene the prison mm, song from the cell block Chicago. tango yeah cell block thank tango. you and so that's what it reminded me of. Also, another shocking moment was, I mean, I know that Amory is part Korean, but there's a part where she um, takes off her jacket and turns around and you see that she has a lower back tattoo and it looks, to, to my uneducated eye, looked like a Chinese symbol. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Hopefully it's in Korean and she knows what it means, though. But I love Amory. That song's still great. You know, I don't know if you've been wondering what she's been up to. She has some albums. Look it up on Spotify. Nice. I Yeah, I, I still love that song. It's great. Um, my number six was Fountains of Wayne, Stacy's Mom. They had been around as a band since like 1995. Their members included Chris Collingwood, Adam Schlesinger, Jody Porter, and Brian Young. The album was released through Ding 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 as Curve Records, which is the same subsidiary that released the Baja Men single Who Let the Dogs Out and Virgin Records. And up until this point, they'd been moderately successful on the indie college radio scene. And Adam Schlesinger, as we've talked about on this podcast in our blog, again, Medium, we've got it. Come visit us over there. Um, behind the scenes, Adam Schlesinger had made a name for himself writing songs for movies, including That Thing You Do, There's Something About Mary, and then of uh, Josie and the Pussycats. 
So the song was written by Schlesinger and Collingwood, uh, but I believe it was actually predominantly written by Adam Schlesinger because it turns out all Fountains of Wayne songs were attributed to them both, but they would actually write most of them separately, and that was their creative process. And Schlesinger said in interviews that he was inspired by a childhood friend who thought his grandma was hot, which is interesting. Um, He also (laughs) said he took inspiration from Mrs. Robinson along with the cars, just what I needed. In fact, the opening guitar riffs are so similar that Rick Ocasek had thought that the band had sampled just what I needed when in fact, they just tried to like accurately recreate it. Um, And he was also inspired by Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl, hence the title being very similar. Single was released in May of 2003 and would go on to reach number 21 on the US Billboard chart um, and stayed there for two weeks, uh, stayed on the chart for 17 weeks and became the first one of the first songs to top the quote, most downloaded songs list on the then relatively new iTunes. It was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Vocal Pop Performance in 2004. The music video is iconic, and it is just directed by Chris Applebaum and features supermodel Rachel Hunter as the aforementioned Stacy's mom. The group had wanted to get Paulina Poroskova for this role and also get Rick Ocasek to appear, but they both never responded or decided they just didn't want to do it. There are several homages throughout this music video to the cars. One of the license plates in the music video says, I heart Rick. One of the kids standing in the line for the bus in the beginning is dressed like Ocasek. And the final scene is an homage to the Fast Times at Ridgemont High pool scene with Phoebe Cates, which is actually in the movie set to the car song Moving in Stereo. After Stacey's Mom, the band would go on to release a few more full-length albums and continue to tour off and on, but they would go on indefinite hiatus due to other projects and because, unfortunately, of Collingwood's mental health. He actually suffered a breakdown on stage in Japan in 2006 and wasn't involved heavily in most of their subsequent projects, and the band would play their final show with the original lineup in 2013. Adam Schlesinger, of course, would go on to write for other bands, movies, and television, ultimately serving as the music producer on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. While he, along with the other members of Fountains of Wayne, uh, would collaborate on more recent projects, including playing on some of the Monkees' most recent albums in this last decade, Schlesinger and Collingwood kind of lost touch over the years and really didn't speak much. Um, Of course, we've talked about on our blog, and I believe on this podcast, that Adam Schlesinger unfortunately passed away back in April from COVID-19. The surviving members of the band have reunited since then to do a charity live stream event to raise funds for the New Jersey Pandemic Relief Fund. And Sharon Van Etten, actually, who I saw in concert a long time ago, and she's fantastic, took his place as bass guitarist. Additionally, a really great tribute album that everyone should check out. Um, It's covers of all of his songs, including some of the solo work and some of his Fountains of Wayne songs. The album is called Saving for a Custom Van. Um, This compilation was released in his memory in the last few months. So kind of sad, but I do want to end on a happy note when I was Googling this song. One of the top questions that came up was, is Stacy's mom Jesse's girl? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the answer? I mean, I think it's still like who let the dogs out. <laughs> the verdict we'll never is still, <laughs> we'll just never know. <laughs> or, or it's up to your interpretation. It's, exactly. you know, whatever you want to believe. There are no wrong answers at law. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to close out my one-hit wonder list with James Blunt's You're Beautiful from 2005. 
James Blunt is a funny, self-referential person on Twitter now, but boy, oh boy, do I fucking hate this song. Yet, I am forcing myself to talk about it because it was unescapable in 2005. Another left the prom dance floor, my boyfriend's brother's wedding, when it came on situation. For the same reasons that James Blunt hates this song, I also hate it. In recent years, he's come out hard against his own art, which I wish more white men would do, quite frankly. He, is, he had this whole article in The Guardian where he wrote in part, quote, you get labeled with these things like, oh, James Blunt, isn't he like a soft romantic? Sorry, I apologize to everybody. <laughs> Sometimes okay, I, don't control, <laughs> I, don't, I don't control the accents. They just come out. Well, fuck that. I am not. Your Beautiful is not a soft romantic fucking song. It's about a guy who's high as fucking kite on drugs in the subway stalking someone else's girlfriend when the guy is there right in front of him. And he should be locked up or put in prison for being some kind of perv. Which, you know, yeah, thank you. Apparently, James Blunt, previously to becoming James Blunt of Your Beautiful fame, was a captain in the British Army in Kosovo. After he left, he did some demos for EMI that went nowhere, but somehow he met Linda Perry at South by Southwest, and she wanted to sign him. Her only condition was that he removed the lyric, fucking high from Your Beautiful. They eventually agreed on flying high, but as Blunt tells it, I told them, I was fucking high! It just makes me laugh so fucking hard. Throughout the whole article, he just keeps screaming like, I was high. This is why I did all of this. I'm sorry. So here's the backstory (laughs) to the annoyingly saccharine song. One day on the tube, Blunt literally saw an ex-girlfriend with her new boyfriend. Their eyes met, but just they just walked past each other. And he went home, got super duper baked, and wrote the words, you're beautiful, in two minutes. He did collaborate eventually with songwriters Sasha Scarbeck in Los Angeles and Amanda Ghost, another co-writer. In November of 2005, Your Beautiful was released in the U.S., reached number one on the Hot 100 after 16 weeks, only to be replaced by Beyonce's Check On It. Blunt was the first quote-unquote band, you know, non-pop act, I suppose, is kind of what they meant, to hit number one since Nickelback's How You Remind Me, which is what, I mean, honestly, just walk into the sea. It's been certified double platinum and sold over 3 million copies in the U.S. The song has received three Grammy nominations in 2007 for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best and Best Male Pop Vocals. On the flip side, Your Beautiful was ranked number seven in a poll conducted by Rolling Stones of 10 Most Annoying Songs. <laughs> and it has been named one of the worst songs ever recorded, despite positive critical reviews. For the music video, James Blunt, in real life, agreed to jump off a cliff in Mallorca. When they got there, he realized, Job from Arrested Development Voice, I've made a huge mistake. When the divers were waiting for him in the freezing cold water in case he knocked himself out, he had to jump in twice because he fucked up the first take when he slipped and then bit his lip. From Blunt's Guardian article, I will leave you with this quote. Quote, I had no idea the song would be such a big hit, and it scared me at first. I thought I was just going to be another musician putting out music. The song released in 2004 became so ubiquitous that it started to irritate people, but I'm still proud of it and I love my job. I sang it at Elton John and David Furnish's civil ceremony and I'm about to start my sixth world tour. So good for James Blunt. I think he's made it out probably, I would I would rank him in like the top of the made it out of the one hit wonder world. Okay. I just appreciate someone who can look back and just be like, yeah, I mean, it was wild. He's appreciative for the success he has, and it's clearly afforded him to be able to, you know, continue touring and perform for amazing things. So, I like you said earlier, his Twitter presence is just like chef's kiss, always just amazing. He just shows up on a, on a day when you need it the most. So, um, yeah, good for him.
And I cannot emphasize this enough. I wish more white men would come out and renounce shit that they've done in the past, art or otherwise. Be like James Blunt. Be the James Blunt you want to see in the world. How about that? Be blunt. Um, <laughs> that, makes, that makes, oddly, a ton more sense than be best, but we won't get into that. My final song, much of in the similar genre of uh, Beautiful by James Blunt, is uh, Plain White Tee's Hey There Delilah, which was released in 2006. Usually that would be kind of like at the end of our spectrum, and, and it really became famous the following year, but it would be so weird to like not bring up this song because it and was I would also everywhere. say, as, as time senselessly marches forward in the midst of literally everything i feel like we can start to push back that number more and more as time goes on because 2006 was a long time ago now yeah not that yeah. long like 12 whatever i don't even know time 14 years Four, ago 14 years ago yeah so um, you know, i think we can push it back a little bit I think we can, yeah. The Plain White Tees had been a band since forming in Chicago around 1997. They'd been successful locally, but like never really made it past that. And they'd released a few albums, all kind of self-financed. Um, but they'd eventually catch the attention of Fearless Records. Uh, they went through some lineup changes after signing their deal and touring for their second album, but pretty much remained the same since 2003. In 2005, they would release their third album, All That We Needed, which included Hey There, Delilah. They would go on to sign with Hollywood Records a year later and release an album called Every Second Counts, which would feature kind of a re-recorded version of the song that featured strings. Lead singer Tom Higginson wrote this song about a woman named Delilah, um, who's real in real life. She is Delilah D. Crescenzo. I am so sorry I mispronounced that. Um, who's actually a distance runner who who competes regularly in U.S. cross-country and distance running championships. So she and Higginson never actually dated. They just met through a mutual friend, Yes, yet he felt compelled enough to write the song about her. The song was recorded and produced by Ariel Rechtshade, or Rechtshade, I, again, probably butchered this, who's gone on to produce for a ton of huge artists, most recently the new Haim album, Women in Music Part 3. By the way, he and Danielle Haim have been dating to, uh, for several years, and he's actually the subject of the song oh, Summer Girl. Oh, yeah, guy. He actually, yeah, that guy. So he had cancer. I don't. I think he might be in remission now, what? but he, yeah. So she wrote you, that song. Did you about, mention that yeah. he was also in Vampire Weekend? So he was in Vampire Weekend, but the most recent albums, he's produced a ton of, of music for people. I mean, I would so I would argue Harley he, Ray Jespin. He's yes, Adele. Like he, I would say that he is about as like as like prolific right now as like um what's his face from Fun Jack. Oh, Jack Antonoff. I would also yeah. say another low key sleeper hit is um Dan Auerbach from Black Keys. Like he produces a ton of people, especially locally in Nashville. Right. Like he, yep. Him and also Jack White. I mean, like they, uh, they aren't all necessarily, I would say like in the same category. I think you're probably yeah. right. Jack Antonoff and Ronstadt are probably like the closest, I know that's not his name, but whatever. They're, yeah. they're probably the closest in career wise, like prolific producers. And also with the, the type of artists that they work with, like Jack, Jack Antonoff does stuff with Lore, like he does stuff with yeah. like uh, other indie queens. So yeah. Right, right, right. So very, very similar kind of artist list of artists that they've worked with. Hey There Delilah gets released in May of 2007. It would go on to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and then the album was certified gold by the RIAA. From July 3rd through 2008, 2007, the song was number one both on the radio and the number one downloaded song 
on the iTunes Music Store in the U.S., which, again, relatively new. And they would go on to perform the song on the ABC Family Show, Greek, along with another song that was a minor hit for them, Our Time Now. Song was nominated for two Grammy Awards in 2008 for Song of the Year, and they lost to Rehab by Amy Winehouse, and then Best Pop Performance by a duo or group with vocal, which they lost to Maroon 5 for Makes Me Wonder. The real Delilah that we talked about earlier, whose last name I will not try to pronounce again, uh, attended the Grammy Awards uh, that year as Tom Higginson's date. And since Hey There, Delilah, the Plain White Tees have had some moderately successful songs, including 1234 from their follow-up album, Big Bad World, and then Rhythm of Love, uh, which was off of one of their following albums, which has been in, like, uh, I think, No Strings Attached in a couple of other movies. Um, but that's really Hey There, Delilah, and that's Plain White Tees, and, you know, they've done all right for themselves, but really, I mean... You couldn't go anywhere in 2007 without hearing that song in a pharmacy or in a cafe or on the radio. I mean, it was just everywhere, everywhere. Agreed. As somebody who was working in retail at that time, it was constantly on. Constantly so yeah, another, on. another song I fucking hate. Yeah, truly. Um, I would probably, it's funny, I didn't, I don't like You're Beautiful at all, but I would revisit it because I like James Blunt, the person, more than I care to revisit Hey There, Delilah. Excellent um, point. <laughs> but that's really all we have to say today about One Hit Wonders. Um, really, you should right now, though, be following us on all the various podcast mediums that we've shown up on because it, this summer, uh, we upgraded big time. We are now on Podbean, which is awesome. Um, but we're also on iTunes and we're also, or Apple Podcasts, whatever you call it these days. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher, Pocket Casts. Uh, Google Podcasts, which I didn't know was a thing until recently. But hey, we're on whatever place you like to stream podcasts. We're there. So check us out. Give us a rating. I mean, if you're on Apple Podcasts, we love, you know, five-star rating. Tell us how we're doing. Yeah. Additionally, we have a Medium page that I've mentioned several fucking times throughout this whole thing. Uh, So check that out because now I am committed to writing a post on who let the dogs out. Um, additionally, we have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram and you can find us there at the old millennials pod. Um, also guys, you are awesome. You have just like gone out of your way to listen to us and we can't thank you enough. So thank you for those of you you. who have, yeah, you've rated us. You've, you've gone out of your way to listen to us. We yeah, cannot thank you enough. You're awesome. Or you downloaded us. Isn't that an accomplishment in and of itself? Truly is a feat in 2020. In a world of stream, you downloaded us. So thank you. Um, But individually, in addition to finding us on all these various places, you can find us individually on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Bijan. And I'm at Margs She Wrote. And until next time, we say bye. Bye. Hey, Mio Squad, it's four best friends from Arizona. We love to get together, have a great time, and get lit. We bring the Mio wherever we go. Our signature drink is vodka and Mio. Mio is a flavor enhancer, and it's a game changer. Game changer. We pregame with Mio, and we talk about all that explicit shit. We talk about a lot of sex and alcohol, so if you're ready, come on, stop by. If you're ready for a down-ass time, check us out on Apple Podcast and Spreaker. We drop that good shit every Friday. Follow us on Insta, Twitter, and TikTok. Hey! Hey. At Bring the Mio.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.